Kevin Markwick here again with another Lockdown Time Machine podcast. I do hope you're enjoying them so far. It'd be great to hear from you if you are. Um, it might even be useful if you're not, really, you know, with your comments. I mean, you know, be quite nice if you can. Um, you can contact me on Twitter using the handle, as I believe the kids call it, at Kevin Markwick. Or you can even email me um, at podcast at picturehouseuckfield.com. Either way, please get in touch. It can be lonely out here in podcast land. Um, This week, continuing the theme of people way smarter than me, I'm conversing with the very brilliant Catherine Bray. Catherine is the commissioner for Channel 4's Random Acts Art Strand. Uh, She's an independent producer making documentary features such as Beyond Clueless for Netflix and Fear Itself, which you can see on the iPlayer, I believe. Catherine has also freelanced as a print and broadcast journalist, including for the BBC, Channel 5, BFI, The Guardian, Time Out and Variety, and has written and presented live and pre-recorded section of the BBC's flagship film show on BBC One. I first met Catherine when she agreed to be in the illustrious lineup for one of our centenary screenings in 2016. Catherine chose Powell and Pressburger's classic The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which also happens to be one of my favourite films. We talked about um, event cinema and all sorts and finally got round to the main event behind the Candelabra from 2013. Um, Certainly the most contemporary of the films we've discussed thus, thus far. I should point out that as I do more of these, I'm learning more and more about the kit. And like an idiot, I've been speaking into the back of my microphone, completely missing the word back printed on the back. So uh, that means that my local recordings of my voice aren't as good as Catherine's, (laughs) who was um, not in the room. Anyway, by the time I do the last one, it should be perfect. Anywho... Uh, I hope you enjoy the chat as much as I did. Uh, I'll be back at the end uh, to clear up any odds that ends. And I'll see you on the other side. Yeah, I mean, the cinema of mine has been there for 104 years, 105 years nearly. Mm. So I don't want to be the guy that presides over its demise. You know, it survived, uh, well, it was built in the middle of the First World War. Um, it survived the Great Recession. It survived World War II. It survived 
television, VHS, DVD, and so far Netflix and all the rest of it, I really don't want to be the one that uh, says, well, that's it, it's over. But it's it's kind of it's out of my control. That's yeah, yeah. I mean, it would never be. Oh, that's the guy who ran it into the ground. It would be that was the guy who happened to be at the tiller when the biggest event of most of all of our lives came along. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And the irony is, we'd had our best year ever uh. last year, like the best year in history. It was maybe that was um, yeah. <laughs> maybe I was feeling a bit smug or something because that always happens to me. If I, I, I learned very quickly not to, not, not to be, uh, look what I have created. <laughs> You're gonna fall flat on your face. Oh, Kevin. I remember when we built, yeah, I remember when we, I built the third screen in 2000, which is, a, you know, it was a massive project for me, and we added a screen on the back, and uh, it was um, a good few weeks. And on the Saturday night, the first Saturday, it was the first Saturday night, I. Um, walked around all three theatres and they were all full. Mm. You know, we had Toy Story 2 and The Beach and there was something else, I can't remember what it was. And I was thinking, look what I have done. I am so amazing. <clears throat> and then business collapsed for the next 14 months. <laughs> <laughs> it just went downhill rapidly after that because we're a bit prey to that in the cinema business, unfortunately. Although it seems to have evened out in the last couple of years, mainly because of event cinema. I don't know, where do you stand on the event cinema thing? I think it's brilliant and I think it's massively under catering to the audience that's there for it at the moment. Like such a lot of it is an offer that's appealing to older audiences. Um, but I think, you know, that idea of cinema as something that you go to with your friends to see something massive that wouldn't be the same at home I think there's young people want to do that too. And at the moment it's just that they're, it's mostly NT live and, you know, opera and all of that. And if they can figure out a way to do more concerts and, you know, pop concerts and so on that might appeal to a younger audience, I think the sky's the limit. Um, I know that there are arguments against it as well, but I think it's got a huge place in a future landscape for successful cinema exhibition. Yeah, I think um, I, I know talk, I, talking to the people that are involved in putting these projects together, the big problem is the rights. They just can't, you know, they can't because these things have to go out across Europe or across the world to make them viable. You've got so many different, um, what they call them, stakeholders in different different territories that it's, it's next to impossible to get uh, music, particularly, you know, Pink Floyd want to play or, or one for the young youngsters there <laughs> or... Um, you know, uh, I can't think of anybody else, but they're very difficult to to organise the rights across the world. That's why we see less of them. Right. Well, that seems like something that they'll have to sort out. They've sorted out a lot of rights um, already in terms of streaming compared to DVDs. Mm. That seems, although it's still a bit territorial, I feel like it's getting a bit more global. Yeah, I mean, the big the big ones in the cinema for us, I don't know, well, globally, have been uh, things like Take That, and um, that was massive, um, which kind of indicates the type of audience that are willing to go to the cinema, perhaps, to see mm. that sort of thing. I mean, you know, in terms of going down the age range, how how far down the age range are you going to be able to go, really? Because if you want to see a band, you're going to want to see it live in a sweaty place, aren't you, rather than... Yeah, 
having a nice but that idea uh, of watching people talk that is so popular on youtube what if you've got you know an evening with kim kardashian and i I don't know i'm completely spitballing and i'm sure brighter minds than than me have thought about this but that idea of getting to spend time in somebody's home for example that we're seeing a lot of now with zoom i think that could potentially be very popular and it has to be that idea of it's not super expensive it's not 50 quid a ticket but you're getting something that you can't get elsewhere and it's something that you want to experience as a group the finale for tv shows as well like things like the finale for rupaul's drag race i would pay to go and sit in an audience of fans and watch that on a massive cinema screen okay instead of seeing it at netflix yeah anything where people are already organizing group viewing parties in their home that's got to be the area yeah i think you're right i think that's a really good angle um we had the doctor who thing uh that did okay um I know some cinemas did the Game of Thrones season mm-hmm. premieres, I think, didn't they? They didn't the finales. But stuff that's designed for an audience inherently already, like, you know, it's, I don't know, I don't like Love Island myself, but I understand it's very popular and presumably the finale of that where people, you know, they announce who wins. If you can see that with other people who are also sort of shouting, oh, come on, so-and-so, or oh, I can't believe that. But that stuff's designed for that sort of response. I think it would surely be more exciting to watch it with other people. I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of odd though, isn't it? It's television, but we're saying that it's more, um, yeah, that, that cinema can do television better than television at that point, which is a bit weird. Yeah, I mean, the thing that television does really well is is you stay with people across a long period of time and you go on a journey with them and you can't do that in the cinema because you're not going to sit in the cinema for like 20 hours unless you're a big Lav Diaz fan. But I think TV does collectiveness almost better than cinema does. It's odd. Yeah, so, yeah, I think you're right. Like the Truman Show. I always think captures that brilliantly, the idea that all these people in different places watching it but are somehow connected by the... Well, are connected yeah. by the same thing. Yeah, and I suppose if you can then gather everybody in the cinema to do it... I mean, they have been doing it, but we've... we've the only one we did was Doctor Who. Where we're slightly um, uh, limited, if that's the right word, is by our demographic where we are. Um, we're not necessarily going to get an audience for RuPaul's Drag Race. <laughs> no, think. maybe the finale of the Great British Bake Off or the Sewing Bee. <laughs> yeah, okay, very good. Um, or if um, Judy Dench decided that she would uh, like to participate in RuPaul's Drag Race, which I think everybody would pay to Absolutely. see, Absolutely, <laughs> it can only be a matter of years before she's on there as a judge, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, possibly, yeah. I'm... But that the thing about event cinema is uh, there's the obvious stuff like it enables us to see things we wouldn't be able to see as well, you know, like West End Theatre or, uh, you know, where we are, we're fairly lucky. We can, you know, we can go to the we can go to the theatre, we can uh, see these things. But if you're outside of the reach of London, um, you can't. And it's a really good way for people to be able to see. But also the cost factor. I mean, I know that that theatres have done a lot, quite rightly, to make £10 tickets available and all of that, but half the time I can't get my hands on those and really paying £50 for a seat up in the gods or £120 for a seat where you can actually see what's going on and you're not even sure whether it's going to be that brilliant because half the time I've been to see a five-star raved about piece of theatre and thought honestly I'd rather be watching a really good film this is just not that good considering the amount of money I've had to put into this 
um, which makes sound like a total philistine, but it happens too often in theatre. And you know, compare that to paying £10 to see it filmed professionally and get the close-ups and you know your seat's in a good spot and you haven't invested that much in it and therefore it becomes a more relaxing experience because you're not feeling this pressure to have 50 or 60 or £70 worth of enjoyment. I think, yeah, it's, there's a real space for it economically as well as geography, uh, as well as in terms of geography. The thing is, though, I would, I do wish we could get a, a younger demographic in for some of that stuff, though. I mean, I know that they would enjoy it if they came, but it's very difficult to sell it to them. I think stand-up comedy would be another big one because it's fun to laugh with a big audience. And all of those people are famous to young pe- younger people from panel shows and sitcoms and all of that. So they know who those people are. And again, they're really expensive and difficult to get a lot of tickets when they, do, when they play a, a gig, often... With comedians, it's not so much because, you know, you're like young people wouldn't necessarily want to go and see a Michael McIntyre that's selling his tickets for some extraordinary amounts, but they would want to go and see somebody who is deliberately playing smaller venues and the tickets are impossible to get hold of because of scarcity and because that comedian doesn't want to play to an arena, they want to play to smaller mm. audiences, but there's still an audience for going and watching them with a bunch of people and laughing with people comedy is such a kind of a group thing (laughs) i remember laughing when was sometime back in february i think um no i think you're absolutely right that's a really good idea i don't think we've ever done comedy i don't think well we've done live comedy in the cinema but we've never done that nobody's ever done an event there you go i'm giving away all the best ideas right the biggest thing for us is national theater Unfortunately, we've missed some absolute corkers. The um, Hatrick Marber um, directed Tom Stoppard thing. Uh, I can't remember the name of it now. Leopoldstadt, wasn't it? Mm. No, it was something like that. Anyway, uh, that was due next week, and that's been, ca- I mean, so much has been cancelled. Did you have um, Cyrano the, with James McAvoy? I went to see that in person, and I imagine that would work very well as an NT Live. That was a blast. Yeah, there are very few of them haven't been a success. Some of them, um have been enormous like uh warhorse took we took more with warhorse from the national theater than we took with steven spielberg's um tub of treacle that he made i don't know when was that (laughs) (laughs) brought to you by visionary director steven spielberg a tub of treacle you know they've cancelled cine europe finally at last which is the big exhibitor sort of get together and that's the one thing i won't miss is endless trailers going from visionary director I mean, what does it mean? They've created visions. That's the bare minimum job description for a director, isn't it? Yeah. Although, uh, have you noticed, maybe I've only just noticed, we don't seem to be getting voiceovers on trailers anymore. Yes. uh, Or in films. I think the narrator is out of fashion um, and has been for a while. And that means that it's ripe to be brought back. Right. (laughs) Whenever something's stylistically out for a while, someone will bring it back, and people and people will go, "Oh, you're the, you're the new Tarantino, or you're the you're the person oh who's like taken yeah. an unfashionable thing and made it fashionable again." Oh my god, that's amazing! <laughs> um, yeah, but all the um, in a world stuff has all absolutely disappeared. I think it's only used in comedy trailers now, isn't it, as a parody? Right, uh, and we seemed. I think have we started to lose the. Fade out, fade in, fade out, fade in (laughs) thing. 
because I suppose most people don't get to see 40 minutes of trailers in one go <laughs> like we do. And you, oh God, come on, man. Um, I could, I'll, I'll be happy when they retire the sort of children's choir doing a cover of something unlikely, you know, something sort of zesty and poppy. And then they've done it in a kind of graveyard choral style that, that can, Go. Although I did enjoy the Candyman trailer, I'm looking forward to that. But ah, still, they've they remade that one. They, I haven't seen that one. Yes, I've forgotten her name, the director, which is really really bad. But it's uh, from Jordan Peele's outfit, Monkey Paw. So it's it's yeah. It's not on our radar generally. That sort of thing. We didn't play us. We didn't play um, the other one, Get Out. Unfortunately, I mean, as good as they were, we didn't. They weren't. You know, we wouldn't have taken a light with them. Unfortunately, um, it is frustrating from time to time, I have to say, because on the one hand, you know, we're really lucky that we can take massive amounts of money with the potato peel Guernsey pie society (laughs) or whatever it was called. Um, But on the other hand, you know, Avengers can only go about 10 days. I was on the phone with my dad a while back and he said, um, oh, I saw a fantastic comedy at the weekend, Catherine. You've got to track this down. Oh, what was it called? And he started describing it. And the longer the description went on, the more I was sort of sinking down into my seat because I'd clocked that he was talking about the sex lives of the potato men. Oh, no. (laughs) Which, yeah, and he'd somehow lit upon the sex lives of the potato men and thought it was the comedy of the year. (laughs) Wow. Have you seen it? I've never seen it, to be honest. It's not good. I saw a bit, I watched a bit of it. Um, We thought it might be funny to put on this much maligned comedy that everybody says is terrible. And I was like, you know what? I've watched 10 minutes of this and life is short. Life is too short to sit through this for a joke. I think the joke's on me if I do. I have to say, um, I've always found, I know a lot of people like to watch bad films as some kind of sport. But mm. never really understood that, you know. Why is Plan 9 from Outer Space so hilarious? It's just a really, really bad film, you know. Ah, see, I think this is funny that we've lit upon this because I'm actually making a film at the moment on this very subject called Guilt-Free Pleasures uh, for BBC4, an hour-long kind of investigation of, like, where you draw the line kind of thing, basically. So I think when when a film is a Plan 9 or The Room or Cats, it kind of tips over uh, into something that can be enjoyed with something very much like love. There's this sort of respect for human fallibility there. That's what I'm getting when I watch an Ed Wood film. It's this kind of... There's this kind of tenderness, this 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 idea that like a human being made this and poured their heart and soul into it. And I'd much rather watch that than something that's just sort of there, just a sort of, you know, born legacy with Jeremy Renier, that mm. kind of like, I don't, uh, no interest in seeing a film that's sort of boringly bad, but something like Ed Wood, strap in, I am there. Okay. No, I understand that. But I think it's probably because it's sort of been, it's followed me around my whole life, this film. is like this this amazing experience to watch Plan 9 from Outer Space. And when I tried to watch it, I thought, oh, this is rubbish. This is just rubbish. I think but I understand the point about Ed Wood. I think Ed Wood in himself is really interesting, isn't he? Yeah. I think the thing is, you're watching something like that, or I, I watch something like that. It's almost more as a documentary of having of of the film like you're you're watching it and going oh someone chose to do that rather than being inside the film and sort of following it for the narrative reasons that you would normally watch a film it's it's a complete it's a different thing 
Mm. I actually really accept your point that it's it's from the heart, and um, he didn't think it was bad, did he? Did he think it was good? That's that's what I'd like to know. I think that's what's fascinating, and you know, someone like that who's really up against it. It costs sort of sixty grand or something to make, and he he was trying to make a film that worked. It's not quite the same thing as the asylum taking a certain amount of money to make a Sharknado because they know they'll get like the internet internet lols and people going, oh, I can't believe they've made a film with sharks inside a tornado. I think it's a different it's a different thing. Yeah, it's almost like a fake fallover on the internet, isn't it? Is they're very different. Yes, yeah, okay. completely that. You and you sense that in a Sharknado that actually they're trying to make the worst film that they can possibly make. It's sort of <laughs> it's, it's very to... kind of like, wouldn't it be awesome if a guy got swallowed by a shark and then chainsawed his way out? And it's like, yeah, on one sort of gondo level, that is fun and that is awesome, but it's not as fun as you know edward trying to convince us that a guy with a cape over his face is bella lugosi like that's properly mm-hmm. that's something that's a documentary of what it was to make a sci-fi film at that time on no money yeah no i'm converted i think you're absolutely e. right i'm gonna go back yeah no no seriously I, I think i'm gonna go back and look at them differently and actually i'm a big um exponent of um well, nonsense mostly, but uh, I can, I, I'm a big believer in judging a film by its own yardstick, which actually, in that case, I wasn't doing, mm-hmm. was I? Because, um, you know, I think if you set out to achieve this and you get reasonably close, I think you've done quite well, I think. But films fail. Uh, I mean, most films don't quite achieve everything they want to but uh okay so an example would be um something wonking great big thing like cold mountain for instance you could almost hear them clicking their fingers at the beginning going (coughs) and clearing their throat (coughs) prepare yourself for greatness yes oscar winning loveliness will be upon you for the next two hours and 20 minutes (laughs) please do not eat or make a sound because we are so brilliant and um, it just falls flat on its face as a result, I think, of that kind of attitude. Yeah. Am I being unkind? No, to I think film? when the goal is as hollow as we want to make something that will win Oscars and obviously nobody will ever cop to the f- idea of like, oh, we put a film together purely to win Oscars. There will always be people involved in the film who are very genuine about their craft and it might be that the writer and director is that. But if a studio wants something to be just that, that's kind of hollow and I don't think it always makes for the best films and it's not just a, an awards thing I mean something I'm quite sort of bored of is those mega budget actiony superhero films where you can sort of feel oh this is a moment that we've put in for the dads because dads will laugh at this quip that Iron Man has made uh here's a bit that we've put in for the teenagers because they'll think that's funny uh here's something for the kids it's like you know it's a cute baby Yoda or a Groot or something that those kinds of films where I can feel what each you know who each moment is supposed to satisfy just feel very calculated in a way that's not particularly appealing and I'm not saying I don't laugh at the bits that are meant for me because I do because they're very well done it's just the overall sense of it that kind of it's being made by some kind of committee. 
And the um, and well, the one thing I noticed a few years ago, it seems that the bare nakedness of it seems to have stopped slightly now. But where all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, we're going to China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh... So what we've been doing is um, I've been asking people, I've been sending this ridiculously huge spreadsheet that I sent you, which has every film that played in um, uh, basically April, May and June uh, since 1964. Uh, at the cinema in Upfield, because um, I've got all the books. I don't know. Oh, let me show you. Oh, I show everyone my books, which they're always really impressed with. So I've got all the ledgers with all the handwritten. Um, so I can tell you. Oh, it's upside down. But I can tell you every what every film has taken and what every uh, what you know how many people came to see it and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic to see something that tangible. I always assume it's all in computers, but. Well, it it is since, well, my dad died um, in 1964, and I know he didn't. He died in 1992. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, you're looking well for how old you must be, Kevin. You know what? He didn't even die in 1992. He died in 1994, which is ridiculous. How could I get that wrong twice? (laughs) (laughs) You're not really Kevin Markrick. You're someone in a mask. Oh my goodness! So he died in 1994, and which is at the point I went to a spreadsheet. But up until that point, he was writing it all down in a book. And so for the last 25 years, it's been on a spreadsheet. So I've been asking everybody pick out something that floats your boat that you wouldn't mind, you know, just talking a lot of old nonsense about. And you picked the 7th of June 2013. Um, I did which is the most recent we've we've so far done 1970 uh, 1981 and 1983 i think well you've played some fantastic movies over the years obviously but i thought i should pick one where i was an actual cinema going adult during that week uh and this one there's some fantastic films in there so yeah it went for the 7th of june um, which is additionally my mother's birthday week. So I'll be able to send her this podcast as an additional present. So did you go with your mother on her birthday to see Behind the Candelabra then? That would have made a really nice conclusion to the anecdote. But no, I think I would have heavily recommended that she do so because I think that's a fantastic film. Um, we were reminiscing about it last night, actually, because um, at as of the the day that we're recording this, it would have been the start of Cannes, the Cannes Film Festival. So a bunch of film critics and I got together on Zoom for a rosé uh, to sort of mourn the fact that we weren't all sitting in the sunshine doing that in the south of France. And mm. obviously Behind the Candelabra was a big one at Cannes that year um which was where i saw it so yeah felt felt like a very timely choice ladies and gentlemen the star of the show wow thank you very very much this is my friend scott thorson you are incredible i love to give people a good time alone at last idea. Why don't you come work for me? As what? I need a companion. Someone I can talk to. Do you even like this man? Yeah, I really do. Well, look who's up. 
I call this palatial kitsch. This is my houseboy. He moves the roost around here. I want to be everything to you, Scott. Father, brother, lover. I want to do some surgery on Scott. I want him to look like this. Sleep tight, my baby boy. Is this the kind of life you want for yourself? You're cute. You are very cute. Stop. Now. Please, please, don't be unhappy. I can't stand it when you have a face like that, especially after the money I paid for it. It's not bad for an old bag, huh? Oh, Daddy. I'm so sorry I'm so informal. <laughs> Will I be able to close my eyes? Not entirely. Please. What a story. I mean, you got everything but a fire in the orphanage. Well, the irony of that one also is that it was a television film, wasn't it? It was It was originally, well, it wasn't eligible for Oscars because it had been on TV in the US. Such a crime. It's the same thing that happened to... Um... Linda Florentino with The Last Seduction. Uh, she should have won an Oscar for that. Michael Douglas should have won an Oscar for this. I think his performance in Behind the Candelabra is the best of his career. And as you say, it went on TV uh, before it should have done and was completely ineligible for Oscars. We should tell the listener that um, Behind the Candelabra, if you haven't seen it, is this... Uh... It's not a biopic, really, is it? I don't think I don't think it qualifies quite as that in a way. Well, it's not telling the story of his life. It's a particular point in his life. Yeah, it's the story of uh, Liberace, or it's the story actually of of um, the Matt Damon character whose name escapes me now. Scott Thorson. Yes, yeah, that's it. With and his relationship with uh, this extraordinary thing called um, Liberace. <laughs> Without. You're presumably not old enough to remember Liberace and his pomp. No, Liberace is one of those figures that I kind of came to through jokes on sitcoms that I didn't understand as a kid. You know, one of those figures that sitcom writers can go to as a joke about somebody who was never out as gay, but was so obviously gay, um, just hiding in plain sight, this fantastic entertainer in bejeweled, caftans and fur coats and a ridiculous amount of jewellery, just absolutely wonderful. And yet with this fan base of sort of little America, little old ladies who hadn't a clue. Extraordinary. That was the first thing, I mean, you know, because actually I sat through it again the other night. Sat through it? Treated yourself to it? (laughs) Yeah, sorry. Somebody else told me about that once. That's a cinema exhibitor's phrase. (laughs) Sat through. I think it comes. I think it comes from, um, you know, you're in the cinema and there are many performances. I sat through the six o'clock performance. I sat through it. Uh, yeah? yeah, like you sat it, in for it, yeah. you were there, but obviously you've seen it a bunch of times before already. It's yeah. yeah. My 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 friend gets very upset when I say that because it sounds dismissive. It's not meant to be dismissive at all. It's just <laughs> it's just the phrase we use. I sat through it. Um, because in the cinema, you have three opportunities a day to see it, if you see what I mean. I think that's where it comes from. Um, so I watched it. Treated yourself to it. <laughs> yeah, treated myself to it again the other night. And um, yes, I've forgotten the point I was going to make. But um, yeah, it's, it, it, 
it's less saucy than I remember it, actually. That's the one thing I, that I picked up. But no, the other thing was that uh, the first thing I always think is that this extraordinary thing that even my parents, no, he's not gay. He's not. <laughs> and I said it to my son. I said, you know, people didn't think he was, you know, they, they said, no, he's not gay. He's not gay. How could people think that? I don't understand. Do you think it was denial? I don't know. I think it's, um, I think that this has always existed to a degree throughout history where people who are the most flamboyant and also in a position of sort of both power and they're not threatening anything. They're not going to shake up society. He's not a politician. He couldn't have dressed the way he dressed and behaved the way he behaved and had a political career. But people kind of, for an entertainer and for someone who isn't being cast as like a leading man in in a romance, he's people sort of like don't want to know or accept it. It's like, it's fine. It's Liberace. He just lives like that. It's, uh, Yeah. But we we stuck some Liberace on YouTube just quickly afterwards. And, uh, yeah. I mean, and the funny thing is he's so phenomenally talented as a pianist as well. Like, he's not someone... There are celebrities now where it's mostly a matter of image control, and he certainly had that. Uh, And people who have a sort of impeccable sense of showmanship, you're sort of like Kim Kardashian doing that magazine cover that got talked about all around the world. I think... Like he had a little bit of that, but he was also backed up by this incredible skill at the piano. Like you can't see his fingers move if you watch old footage of him playing something high tempo. Well, apparently he didn't practice because he was so good. He didn't need to practice. And I guess he was doing pretty much the same thing every night, which is why he could go out and um, (laughs) find all these young boys to be with because he wasn't busy at home practicing. And it's a really fun choice, I think, to show it through the eyes of the ingenue, uh, the Matt Damon character, Scott Thorson. So it's based on Scott Thorson's memoirs, which I've read and are very entertaining and sort of embittered, but tender at the same time. Um, And you go on the journey with him of being sort of dazzled by this incredible guy. I mean, of course, we know that it's not going to turn out very well necessarily for him, but you get to share in that kind of, wow, what is that? I want to be part of that world. That's incredible. Followed by the sort of gradual realization that uh, it's it's kind of a creepy world as well as a, a glittering one. Um, but and so funny, I think the fact that they didn't need to really change anything or make anything up uh, about this bizarre story to make it compelling in the cinema. The fact that he had plastic surgery, that Scott had plastic surgery to look more like Liberace. I mean, that's a detail for the ages. I, I, it always makes me feel really uh, weird how kind of puffy and punt, even even though he's he's kind of buff when he has the surgery. He looks like he's just been in a fight and it feels really, it looks really uncomfortable. I think they do that really, really well. That sort of cat people mask that you see on those kinds of faces in Vegas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it gives Rob Lowe the the role of a lifetime as the creepy Hollywood doctor just doling out, you know, speed and injections and doing surgery while he himself is drunk. So, so funny. I don't think I've ever loved a performance of his more. And, you know, that's a guy with a deep back catalogue. Yeah, he's very, um, he's actually very good at being um, uh, self-parodying, isn't he, Rob Lowe, I think. Yeah, we, we re-watched Wayne's World, sat through Wayne's World, to use your, <laughs> your phrase, uh, the other day. And as the sort of record company executive sleaze, he's incredible. But uh, I think it's... 
the Behind the Candelabra performance is even less vain. What would happen to a guy like that in his 40s or 50s after he's done all this surgery on himself to try to maintain those looks and that lifestyle? But there's only so long that that will work for before you start looking like a haunted Halloween mask. So do we think Scott is a reliable narrator? Well, he's certainly got an axe to grind. Um, But I think the interesting thing about cinema as a medium compared to, you know, literature is that you can see things that the point of view character doesn't necessarily want you to see. So in a book, you have to make the conscious decision to write in uh, these sort of background details, like there are a bunch of other young dancers around at all times. And in the film, you can sort of show that happening kind of behind Scott's back. And and um, it's much more up to Steven Soderbergh how complicit we think Scott is in this sort of journey where I think it's very sympathetic to him. Maybe, as you say, maybe slightly too much so because you can't quite believe that he didn't know what he was getting into. And this idea that he should have had half of Liberace's fortune, I don't know, it it's it's a tricky area because they couldn't marry and Scott's argument is well we would have been married if we were a straight couple and then I would have had half of his fortune so it's it's very complicated and knotty and sort of you bump up against things uh like where the idea of gay rights might cross over with the idea of gold diggers rights (laughs) but it's an extraordinary um bubble that they live in which is what I think gives it um a really uh, this this claustrophobic feel that it has, but his his um, Michael Michael Douglas performance is quite something, isn't it? I think he he creates a monster, but with such tenderness that you kind of see the monster's perspective. I mean, this is an old man. Like, should he have to go out on the town every Saturday night? Can't he just stay in and enjoy this gilded cage that he's built for himself and his lover? I'd do the same every Saturday night here in Upfield. <laughs> <laughs> I do, do you think it's a deliberate joke about the dimple? I've always wondered about the dimple. Do you think the dimple, you know, because he wants a dimple in his chin, which is the very thing Michael Douglas has covered up in this film. I don't know if it's <laughs> a joke or not. Am I, am, I, I, am I seeing too much in that? I think uh, Liberace did want that. For, I mean, it's age, I haven't read the book since the year that this film came out, but I remember being startled by how many of the mad details were directly from the book and presumably directly from life because a lot of them are too weird to make up. One of the things um, I enjoyed about it was the um, sense of period. I thought they did the 70s very, very well in it. Yeah, it, it's it's that sort of difficult thing of the aesthetic that you're trying to replicate is a real over-aestheticized thing. So how do you do that without people going, well, you've you've gone over the top here, like this film is, is so designed that I it can't breathe and I don't believe that these are real people. And I think they get that balance just right. You, it's, I mean, we don't spend very much time outside of the Liberace compound, but I think when you do see a little bit of like Scott on the ranch that he's from, I can't remember exactly where it is. It might be somewhere like Kansas. It's very much that idea of sort of the rube from Kansas coming to the big city. And his step parents, who he's been raised by, they, you know, they have this idyllic rural ranch with horses. And that feels much more like something out of a sort of 70s. Robert Redford type movie and I think that plays really nicely against the kind of glitz of Vegas and it helps show you that what we're not we're not in this sort of over-designed Liberace world 
of the film. It's it's the film depicting that world very accurately. I think Scott seems to go along with it initially against his better judgment. Do you think? That's the I think feeling he's I dazzled by it. I think if it wasn't Liberace, you know, it could have easily been somebody else. Because this is someone who's been very sheltered and is sort of searching for love and the the showmanship that he sees in Liberace, I think is a showmanship that he could have found in a different mentor or a different kind of uh, milieu, but it, it happens to be that milieu. And, you know, you could sort of place a more unkind reading and say that he was, he was looking for somebody to be this sugar daddy to him. I don't think it's that. I think it's that he, you know, he really wanted to escape. And this was the, the escape that he found himself in. I think it's really funny, the doubling with the, with the boys that come before and after him. So you see Cheyenne Jackson, um, who, very funny actor, has been on sort of Saturday Night Live and 30 Rock and all those sorts of things. Um, he's leaving as Scott arrives and he is dressed like a full Liberace clone. He's had the surgery. He's huffy and bitchy and prissy. And Scott is looking at him like this sort of cornbread, wide-eyed wonder. And, of course, that's exactly where Scott is headed. That's, that's Scott. You know, we, we in can see a few that, years, though, can we? We, can, we can see that. And Scott, though, he's he because he's so far from being that at the beginning of his journey, he can't even guess. And then towards the end of the film, we we see this kind of very bubblegum, peachy backing dancer who's sort of as innocent as Scott was, mm. maybe. Uh, start to be attracted to Liberace and Liberace starts to buy him things, invite him back to the pad. And we know that he's on to the next one because I think for Liberace, it's the sort of, it's that journey that appeals of taking somebody very innocent and, and welcoming them into his world and giving them all of these things. And then the surgery and it's, it's a cycle. And the descent interestingly is normally we some something we see from the creative from the star we're seeing the descent from the other side we're not seeing liberace descend into anything other than exactly what it is that he wants to do it's a less told tale isn't it like the the fact that actually although there are troubled stars and you do see sort of you know a, a freddie mercury or amy winehouse narrative where it's about what happened to them and their great tragedy there are a lot of stars out there where the tragedy is all in the people around them because they're so protected and so powerful. Um, I think it was quite a prescient film because it was a bit before Me Too, but it's kind of that story of uh, how much freedom of choice can you have when you're in a relationship with someone who is that much more powerful and wealthy and older than you. So did people go and see it? You tell me, Kevin. <laughs> I, I luxuriate in the art and I don't pay attention to box office. That's not quite true. But you, you're much more at that the sharp end of that than I am. Well, I look back at the numbers and, you know, they sort of mostly did. It wasn't enormous. We were having about um, 100 people a day in for it, which I think is okay. Mm. It's not an immediately commercial film, is it? Let's face it. <laughs> yeah, it's funny for something with so much money on screen and for something which, as I say, I saw at Cannes and in the world of Cannes, you know, it's not a, a like a nine hour film about farmers in 
Eastern Europe and the daily struggles of their life like it so it seemed at Cannes like it was going to be this very commercial thing and you know it's Michael Douglas it's Matt Damon but actually when you take a step back from that and look at it through a more normal cinema going UK lens it is a bit of an oddity it is and 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 actually mildly threatening to certain audiences in the, yeah. what they thought they might go and see on screen, I think. Well, it's it's a tricky one because um, maybe you don't want to see a film about a fabulous gay icon, but if you are the usual audience for a fabulous gay icon, well, guess what? This one's a predator and really like quite tricky and difficult sort of figure. So yeah, it's it's a little bit falls between two stools there. But it was way, I think I said uh, a while ago, it's way less saucy than I remember it being. Somehow oh yeah, it's like a bit of bum, but not yet. Yeah. <laughs> Hmm. In my mind, it was, you know, way more, you know, that the, there was a lot more uh, uh, physical stuff going on between the pair of them. But actually, there's not that much in it at all, is there really? No. Because that's not what it's about, necessarily. And if it was a man and a woman, you'd be going, this is a severely undersexed film, considering <laughs> it's supposed to be so raunchy. Um, but I guess... It- even now, um, and certainly in 2013, you were you weren't seeing a lot of gay romance in a cinema in sort of films of at this level and with this level of star. I have to say, I'm not a big fan of sex scenes in films, full stop. Not because I'm a prude in any way, but they always kind of seem pointless to me. I don't, I don't fully understand. Um, you know, it's a, it's a funny and messy business. I don't really need to see it on screen as well. And not certainly not represented with billowing muslin and, and raising <laughs> strings and all that. I was just stuff, about so. to say, I love a sex scene that's filmed in the same way as you would film the rest of the action and seems like a natural continuation of the action. Like there's that, that fantastic one in, of all things, um, Enemy at the Gates, the Jude Law Soviet front film from maybe I know the film I'm trying to remember the sex scene yeah so and it's quite casually done it's him and Rachel Weiss and they are in the barracks with all of the other soldiers and it's nighttime so everyone's sleeping and they sort of just have at it quite furtively for a brief amount of time while everyone else is sleeping around them there's not a lot of skin involved and it's just shot like you would shoot them getting up to go and use the loo in the middle of the night it's very casual and I think that works. I think when sex scenes are staged like a sort of an action sequence, then you're just kind of going, well, that's not real. Uh, what is that? I, I don't know. I'm not watching. I'm not watching truth. Like cinema is good when it does truth, I think. Something that really made me laugh, I was reading Mindy Kaling's book, uh, Why Not Me? Um, Mindy Kaling's sort of been making movies recently, but shot to fame on the US office. Uh, where she had this on-screen romance with her friend BJ Novak. I think they were sometimes a couple in real life and they would kiss as part of the the action in the office. And that was the first time she'd ever done on-screen kissing. And, you know, they kissed with tongues. They thought that that was what you did. And then maybe kind of six seasons into her show, New Girl, in which she's the lead and the star, someone sort of said to her, you know, typically, Mindy, like we don't kiss with tongues in film and TV. (laughs) And she'd been doing this for about 10 years at this point because nobody had ever told her that most of the time when you see people kiss on screen, like there's no tongue action going on. That's like that scene is sort of rude. (laughs) So, uh, okay. So behind the candelabra, where can you see it? You can see, you can only rent it at the moment. You can't, it's not on any of the streaming 
services that you're already paying for, which gets right up my nose, <laughs> paying for all this stuff. Um, and that same week, we had the Great Gatsby, which I don't know. It didn't do much for me. Did it do much for you? Uh, I remember being excited to see it simply because um, I got into a very early and sort of secret screening. And when you're a young film critic, the idea that you get to see things sort of way before anybody else is a bit of a thrill. But the actual film, I don't know, it just it kind of does the opposite of Behind the Candelabra, like in that everything is very overly designed and you don't quite buy it. And sure, that's what you show up to a Baz Luhrmann film for. But I think he'd done it so much more successfully with films like Moulin Rouge or Romeo and Juliet. And The Great Gatsby feels a bit more Baz Luhrmann by numbers, if that makes sense. It does. And it's not the book. It's very not the book, I think, you know, as a, as a, as a uh, fan of the book. It's that that excess that doesn't. I don't. I don't recall that excess in the book. It doesn't have the that. The book of is repelled by that as well as attracted by it, and the film I think is just attracted by it. Uh, and we had Star Trek Into Darkness, which left me completely cold. I'm afraid, um, as a Star Trek fan, I don't understand these Star Trek films, the new ones, because they're not Star Trek really. I mean, they're good action pictures, but they're not Star Trek. I think it was a turning point for me because I. Up until that point, I think I was 30 when this film came out. I'd been very excited by all of these new, you know, Avengers Assemble and the first Star Trek. And I'd gone along and been like, wow, wasn't that great? And this was the first one where I was like, wow, was that that great? And I don't think that that was because this was particularly a worse film than the others. I think it was more because by that point I'd seen so many of them and they'd started to seem so samey and sort of the the scaffolding had started to show a bit and it's not a criticism of the film per se it's a criticism of that model of filmmaking where you've got i mean we've talked about this before but the you've got the bit that's in there for the mums the bit that's for the dads the bit you've got that real kind of four quadrant how how can this movie satisfy that audience at different points of the film and it feels like somebody's been there with a graph going okay here's the adrenaline bit here's the tender bit here's the bit where this happens um have we got enough quips we need to make sure there's a quip every 10 minutes and it just feels like it's been built by committee as you said yeah i i mean like i say i'm a big star trek fan i don't want to be one of those fans that hates everything that i love you know <laughs> i'm not i'm not that i'm not that person that you know when the film comes out uh, or the the new TV show and goes, oh no, that was terrible, that was awful. You know, like the Star Wars fans seem to hate Star Wars, which I know <laughs> I understand. You know, and ultimately, it's for children, isn't it? It's a children's film, uh, or am I being dismissive? I don't know. No, I don't think it's a coincidence that it was around the age of thirty that I stopped being able to be excited by those films. I don't know if it's a children's thing, but I do think it's sort of harder to engage with them as you get older, and that's as it should be. I wouldn't want to take away from 20-somethings who are still having a blast with these things but I probably would say to them don't think you'll never change because I I know that when I was 25 I thought that, that I was going to think those films were awesome forever. But 45 year old men getting upset about the latest Star Wars seems like a, a futile banging your head against the wall process. Well they look like 45 year old men and certainly their birth certificate says they're 45 year old men but... <laughs> Did, did, did something maybe happen at around the age of 25 and they've never gone beyond that? I don't know. I, I should let you go because you've got your thing, your next thing coming <laughs> up. I was going to ask you about, because one of the things I've been asking people is where they went to the cinema as a kid. Oh, well, there was a choice of this 
sticky carpeted three screen Odeon uh, in Bournemouth or the sticky carpeted three screen ABC cinema in Bournemouth. Or if we were feeling really fancy, we could drive over to the Tower Park Leisure Centre where a galaxy of entertainment awaits and you could play bingo or, you know, go to a Pizza Hut or Laser Quest or a cinema that I think had maybe upwards of six screens. So that was really exciting, you know, that a trip to Tower Park meant business. Well, the two Bournemouth cinemas, uh, I think they're knocking them down now, aren't they? They're two in the, uh, the ABC. Yeah, they've got a, they've got an Odeon Lux Megaplex thing now, just across the road from where they used to have the. Um, the um, the ABC in its in its pomp was a glorious cinema, absolutely glorious cinema with big seventy mil screen and and all sorts. Um, I saw Lethal Weapon three in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think I saw uh, The Empire Strikes Back on a sort of rep screening there that they did for uh-huh. some reason. Um, but and they that may, was the have, first... may have brought that back in 70 mil. That's why, because they had 70 mil in there. Oh. And the, the, um, the other 70 mil I saw in there was um, Far and Away, which mm. was pretty boring. <laughs> Let's make a film in 70 mil and set most of it in the dark back streets of Boston. <laughs> making the most of this widescreen photography that we can use. Anyway, um, thank you, Catherine. That's been marvellous. Thank um, you, Kevin, for having me. Bit of fun. I can give you anything but love. That's the only thing. To see you looking swell, baby. Diamond bracelets, Woolworth doesn't sell, baby. Well, I can't actually add anything to that. I think we covered uh, pretty much everything. It just remains for me to uh, thank Catherine very much for her time. I know how busy she is, and I really, really appreciate it. Um, So, uh, next time, um, we have Matthew Sweet, which is also a treat. Oh, dear. (laughs) Didn't mean to do that. (sighs) Anyway... If you do like the podcast, like and um, subscribe and all of that stuff that you're supposed to do to get podcasts uh, more recognised because that would be really, really, really nice. Anyway, I hope you're enjoying them and it just remains for me to say goodbye. I'll see you next time and take it away, Liberace.
things you've always hoped and pined for. Gee, I'd like to see you looking swell, baby. Diamond bracelets, oh, it doesn't sell to my baby. So until that lucky day, you know darn well, baby. Yeah. 